All right. Well, today we return to our series through the New Testament book called Hebrews, and I'll be finishing what is really a two-part message that I began last week. One of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of the priesthood of Christ. Comparisons are made between his priesthood and the priesthood that was instituted in the time of Moses. And suffice it to say that the priesthood of Christ is better. (laughs) The book of Hebrews, as well as other New Testament books, explain that the old priesthood was an imperfect shadow designed mostly to point forward to that which would be fulfilled in Christ. This is why in the church there was clearly no continuation of the Jewish priesthood, nor was there a need to establish any new, new priesthood made up of men. Those who added priests to the church did so centuries later. In fact, not a single church mentioned in the Bible had priests, not one. Now, obviously, the Roman Catholic Church and a few other groups believe there is still a need for an earthly priesthood in the church, in addition to the priesthood of Jesus. And while I don't wish to offend anyone, I do feel the need to hit this head on because any priesthood of men is clearly superseded in the book of Hebrews, that which we are currently studying. But according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, a Christianity without a priesthood cannot be the church of Christ. Let me say that again. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, a Christianity without a priesthood cannot be the church of Christ. That's an absolute statement, which if true would mean that Go Church is not actually part of the true church. This would also mean that the church of Corinth or Ephesus or any other New Testament church was not the church of Christ. I will simply say this, in the entire Catholic case for an ongoing priesthood, I find not one single direct quotation from New Testament Scripture. Sometimes second-generation church fathers are quoted, or you might see a quote from the Council of Trent or others who came later, but absolutely nothing from Jesus, nothing from the apostles, and nothing from the New Testament Scripture. Far from the Bible telling us that we still need a priesthood of men today, I would say it teaches quite the opposite. But rather than building a case, I will just say it plainly. New Testament Scripture leaves absolutely no room for an ongoing priesthood of fallible men. As I mentioned last time, the Bible prescribes only two offices of leadership in the church, which are pastors, perhaps better known as elders or overseers in Scripture, and deacons who are to help with ministry in the church. When it comes to priests, just like the sacrificial system, system which they oversaw and similar to the Jewish temple, their priesthood was forever fulfilled and finished in Christ. Let me sum it up this way. According to the Bible, the only one who continues to serve as a priest between God and mankind is Jesus Christ. That statement is actually the thesis of all of our biblical texts today. If we start with the book of Hebrews or if we start with the Bible in general, there is simply no way we will wind up with a human priesthood in the church today. No way. Now, having been clear on this major point of disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church, let me pause and say that Catholics are not our enemies. I have come to believe that many practicing Catholics will be with us in heaven 
They are our brothers and sisters, those who have personally placed their faith in Christ. If I'm honest, I'd rather be around a devoted Catholic than most of the rest of the world. So, there will be honest and strong disagreement with Catholicism in this church, but there will be no bashing of Catholics. Besides, Blue Bloods is one of the only shows I like on television. <laughs> Back to the review. I explained last time that the definition of a priest or the calling of a priest has always been to function as a mediator between God and man. A priest is a go-between. But the Bible says there's only one who can truly fulfill this calling, and his name is Jesus. He died and rose again to be the only priest we'll ever need. As the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. How many mediators? One. Throughout the book we're studying, the book of Hebrews, there are many passages explaining that Jesus Christ is our high priest. So what I've done is to pull all those passages together and to boil them down into truths that we can apply. There are at least six different ways that the priesthood of Christ is described as a better priesthood in the book of Hebrews. We covered three of those ways last time. We'll cover the final three this week. Let's briefly review the first three. The priesthood of Christ is better because, number one, He is the builder. According to Hebrews chapter 3, starting with verse 1, we have a high priest who mediates between us and God while also building us from the inside out into something that is holy and acceptable to Him. As the indweller and builder of our lives, the one who knows us inside and out, Jesus is in a position to be a better priest than anyone else ever could be. Secondly, we look at many passages in Hebrews pointing to the fact that our high priest is without sin. That's number two, he is without sin. Unlike all the other priests in history, Jesus never sinned. The Jewish priests had to first offer a sacrifice for their own sins, and then they could offer sacrifices for the people. But then they would sin again, and so they would need to offer sacrifices again over and over and over, and it was never complete. Sacrifice of animals, rituals of religion, temples made with hands, and fleshly priests were never enough to bridge the gap between mankind and God. Conversely, as a sinless sacrifice and a perfect priest, Jesus is completely enough. Because Jesus is without sin, His is a better priesthood. Thirdly, the priesthood of Christ is better because He is the Son of God. We looked at several verses in Hebrews linking the priesthood of God to His Sonship. We talked about what the Bible means by the phrase, Son of God, and what it does not mean. Son of God is a metaphor used to convey the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh, or both fully God and fully man at the same time. This dual nature referred to by the phrase, Son of God, is precisely what makes Jesus the perfect high priest. He is the perfect mediator between God and man because He is both God and man. He understands our weaknesses even as he sits on the throne. As we read, we read he was tempted yet did not sin. He knows what it's like. He knows exactly how it feels to face temptation and trials in this life. And yet he is also fully God. That's why his priesthood is perfect. Today, we'll cover the last three reasons that the priesthood of Christ is a better priesthood. All part of this better way to know God that is the subject uh, of our series and that which the book of Hebrews lines out. 
so well. Moving forward to number four. The priesthood of Christ is better because he is a heavenly high priest. From chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point <laughs> in what has been said at this point, all the other material that we've been covering and are going to cover today, it kind of gets wrapped up. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Folks, this is an incredibly important passage of Scripture. It is the key to understanding a crucial truth from the Old Testament, the methods that God told the Israelites to use in worship, the ways they were to relate to God, the, the things He told them to build, the practices they were to institute, were not only meant to foreshadow the coming of Christ, but they were also designed as copies of the things already happening and already existing in heaven. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying, that Moses was instructed to do everything in such a precise way because God wanted His chosen people to bring heaven down to earth. When you read something like the book of Leviticus, or maybe First and Second Chronicles, among other books, which I know that many of you are hanging out reading Leviticus and First Chronicles, you know, I'm sure daily. Uh, but when you do, uh, you're reading about how God was trying to create a picture of the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. And see, that's why sometimes what we read sounds so extravagant and almost otherworldly. Extravagance and otherworldliness is required if you're going to pattern something earthly after something heavenly. One of the designs we could see the heavenly pattern most clearly in is that of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the precursor to the temple, a mobile temple really, that which was used for worship while the people were still wandering in the desert waiting to enter the promised land, and for some time after that. The tabernacle was used for worship right up until the time when Solomon built the first um, permanent temple in Jerusalem. Both the temple and the tabernacle were built according to precise designs handed down by God through Moses. They were patterned after heavenly things. And yet, to be clear, they were not heavenly, but earthly. Still, if you want to know more about heaven's worship, Study the pattern and model for worship, which was instituted in the time of Moses. What you'll see is the vain effort of mankind to try to get themselves holy enough to enter into the worship of God, that which goes on perpetually and freely in heaven. I say theirs was a vain effort at holiness because part of the purpose of God in the Old Testament was to show the people their desperate need for a Savior, for a Messiah, for a Christ. One of the biggest differences is that they looked forward in faith to Christ, just as we look back to Him. The difference, though, is that now the work of Jesus is finished, which is to say the earthly pattern is done and the heavenly reality has begun. Maybe I should say that again. 
The earthly pattern is done. And the heavenly reality has begun because of Jesus. For instance, the priesthood of men proved utterly insufficient. It was a shadow and a pattern. It proved utterly insufficient repeatedly, which helped show the people why they needed a heavenly high priest who could truly mediate between sinful mankind and a holy God. That is, one who could actually bring us before God, to carry us to God. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. The earthly tabernacle was a tent that they had to pitch or set up. Every time they stopped for a while, they would set it up. You might have heard about that, but maybe you were not aware that there is also a true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. This is a reference to the heavenly temple. As I mentioned, the earthly tabernacle and temple were actually patterned after the heavenly one, that very sanctuary in heaven where the Bible says God is seated on his throne. We also learn here that our high priest, the one who died for our sins, rose again and ascended in heaven, into heaven to, in order to be able to minister on our behalf, not in an earthly tabernacle, but within that true and heavenly one, continually serving as the mediator between us and God. It's almost as if we could be there because of Jesus, and one day we will be. Look back at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 8, our main text. You're going to find it there right under point 2 in your listening guide. If you look at 4 and 5 in that paragraph of Scripture under point 2, you'll see these verses tell us that all the priests of history were what? They were only a copy and a shadow of the priesthood of Christ. You see that there? I want you to see it in Scripture. Chapters 8, verses 4 through 5, tell us that the whole Jewish religious system was patterned after heavenly things. Even the Jewish priesthood was patterned after the priesthood of Christ. This is why God told Moses in Exodus 25, 40, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Moses had been given the pattern of heaven, and God was pretty serious about them getting it as right as they possibly could on earth. So remember this, the pattern for earthly worship is always heavenly worship. And this is kind of a side point today, but it's so important when it comes to learning how to worship God. Compared to the things of heaven, the things of earth can only inspire a shallow kind of worship. We need to realize that we are joining in with the angels and other heavenly beings when we sing praises to God. There's a temple up there, and because of Jesus, we get to join with them. The truest worship on earth is an overflow of the worship of heaven. But listen, we cannot fully connect with the awesome worshipfulness of heaven's holy temple until we comprehend and embrace the heavenly priesthood of Christ. Because without him, we have no place in heaven's worship. No place at all. So just as Jesus had, had to come to us before we could get to him, worship flows from the top down. And only then can it go back up again. Folks, the greatest worship on earth is a response to our holy God who is seated on his throne in heaven. Isaiah tells us the train of his robe fills the heavens with glory. And while the, while the mighty angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the heavens that shake with the majesty of his holiness and power. We need to remember 
that our heavenly high priest is there for us, representing us. Christ is there in that scene, literally, and he is ministering and mediating on our behalf, allowing us a place in the heavenly congregation right now giving us the opportunity to worship the holy God of the universe, even for now from earth. Thank God our high priest is heavenly. If Christ were an earthly priest, we'd still be stuck in something that was merely a pattern and a shadow of true worship. But let's go a little deeper still. The writer of Hebrews says the tabernacle was designed after the pattern of heaven. And so what, is, what do we see in that pattern? We see a design which separates the holiness of God from earthly things. If we were to enter the Jewish tabernacle of old, we would first enter a large courtyard where, like it or not, certain people are not allowed. Let's just say that this half of the congregation is left out because of various uncleanliness issues. You're unclean, sorry, right half of the congregation. Mm, unclean. Let's just say that this half is determined, can go. You're in, you're out. Sorry. You shall not pass. You cannot go in. The way is shut. And a message is clearly sent, isn't it? That not just anyone can draw near to a holy God. And then we move from there into the smaller and even more exclusive holy place where only a select few are allowed. Just to say that, say that from everyone who's left, um, only your pastors and staff is allowed to enter. But wait, actually, um, only men. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's the way God designed the tabernacle. Um, Jessica and Vicki on our staff, they're barred from entry until, you know, under penalty of death. And uh, Again, a message of exclusivity is clearly sent. Not popular. Not popular. I get it. From there, let's say our five, uh, your five pastors, ordained reverends all, attempt to enter the most holy place. And guess what happens to us? Each and every one. We all die. You see, only the high priest can enter there and only once each year to make atonement for sins. By the way, when the high priest goes in, they tie a rope to his foot in case he dies while he's in there, you know, in case God decides he isn't holy enough and wants to kill him. It's true. That way they can pull out his body without anyone else having to die. That's honestly the way it was in the earthly tabernacle, which was run by earthly priests. This was God's design, and he designed it this way to show them how badly they needed something better, how badly they needed a Savior. But that's not where God left things, is it? No, when Jesus died, the Bible says the curtain or the veil separating the most holy place, this small and off-limits area, was split in two from top to bottom just to prove God did it. Now, even sinful, unclean Gentiles like most all of us here today have complete access, not only to the courtyard or to the holy place, but 
also to the most holy place, the holy of holies, male, female, Jew, or Gentile, every single one of us who trusts in Christ may enter. Why? How? Because Jesus now serves as our heavenly high priest. And folks, He is interceding on our behalf. We can be there spiritually in the heavenly temple because Jesus brings us there. As the Apostle Paul put it, Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He makes it okay for us to be in the heavenly presence of God. See, the priesthood of Christ is better because He is a heavenly high priest. We are no longer operating in the shadow or earthly things, but now our emissary is at the right hand of God. Unlike earthly priests, Jesus came from heaven and He returned to heaven, and because of this, He's able to bring us right into the heavenly presence of God. But I want to point out one more nuance to the fact that the Christ of heaven is our high priest, because we need to remember also that Christ lives within us. He lives within us in the person of His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and this, this is true even while in bodily form, in bodily form, He is also interceding for us in heaven. At the same time, His Spirit is in us. So beyond His presence in heaven, what does it mean that our high priest lives in us? Well, basically, this makes each of us priests as well, inasmuch as Christ is in us. Some have called this the priesthood of the believer. Through Christ, who lives in us, believers are treated as priests before God. In other words, through Christ, we can go to God on our own behalf. Just remember the through Christ part. And this idea is outlined in Scripture through such verses as this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may worship, proclaim the excellences of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wait, as a believer, I am a royal priest? Somebody said I was a royal pain once, but a royal priest? Like a kingly priest? Yes, because when the high priest of heaven comes to live in your heart, you become like a priest yourself. Maybe you didn't realize you were so important. Remember from last week, from the beginning of chapter 3, where you and I are referred to as holy brethren, partakers, partakers of a heavenly calling. And then right after that, we're told that Jesus is our high priest. But if there is a high priest, who are the other priests compared to whom he is higher? We are the other priests. This must be at least part of what is being referred to as our heavenly calling in verse 1 of chapter 3. And so, yes, it is true that through Christ and only through Christ, you are a priest before God. Jesus died and now lives in you to make this possible. 
But now we need to move on to the fifth reason he's a better, uh, his is a better priesthood. The priesthood of Christ is better because he has always been the high priest. One of the neatest things about the book of Hebrews is that it is basically an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. And when I say inspired, I mean God breathed because that is what the word inspired means in the Bible's description of itself, telling us that Scripture was literally breathed out of the mouth of God. And so with a book like Hebrews, we basically have God's Word explaining God's Word. Particularly when we read a New Testament explanation of an Old Testament story, we have something very special. And we get a lot of that in the book of Hebrews. So we're going to read quite a bit of text at this point in order to hear how God explains the fact that Christ has always been the high priest. After we've read the Scripture, I'll do my best to explain as much as I can. This is what the Word of God says from Hebrews 5, verse 5. It's in your listening guide or on the screen, or you can look it up if you prefer. I use the New American Standard most of the time. Hebrews 5, verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify Himself so as to become a high priest. But He who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you, just as He says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he, Christ, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Be thankful I'm cutting it off there. I mean, I love how the writer of Hebrews basically says there, if you don't understand what I'm trying to teach you, don't blame me for your own stupidity. Now, I'm definitely not saying to you this morning that if you don't get this, it's because you are dull of hearing. I'm definitely not saying that. Definitely not. So, who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek was a character who showed up out of nowhere, way, way back in Abraham's day. And basically, Abraham worshiped before him with tithes and offerings. And unlike angels who always stop people from trying to worship them, Melchizedek didn't stop Abraham from worshiping him. That's our first clue as to who he was. Before I go on, let me state my position plainly. I fully believe Melchizedek was an early manifestation of Christ. Much like the angel of the Lord in Scripture that we've talked about at length already in this series, I believe Melchizedek was a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the one who would later come to be the Savior, the Christ, God coming down to humanity, or as I've been saying, God in accessible Form. Jesus has always been the ultimate mediator between God and man. But understand that he was not called Jesus until he was born. See, the one we call Jesus has always been the high priest. Always. This action of mediating between God and man is just what the pre-incarnate or pre-flesh Christ did in those days before Bethlehem. And he did this mediation as the sometimes visible manifestation of the invisible God. Now, having given you my conclusion ahead of time, let's see what the book of Hebrews says about this very interesting man, who I believe was more than a man, 
This one referred to as Melchizedek. And I'm going to pause throughout this passage for some brief explanations. Follow along on the screen or in your Bibles with me. From chapter 7 of Hebrews, the Word of God says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now let's pause right there. King of righteousness and king of peace. As a New Testament reader, who would you already assume the writer of Hebrews is talking about at this point? And this was all the information we had. Who else but Jesus? And remember that this comes right in the middle of a passage about the high priesthood of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews goes back to the first priest ever mentioned in Scripture to make a comparison. By the way, this was long before Moses, folks. This was hundreds of years before the priesthood of Aaron or the priesthood of the Levites. In fact, at this point, there had never been a mention of a priest, a priesthood, or even any description of what a priest was supposed to be. Melchizedek was a priest who just seemed to already somehow exist as a priest. And remember, how far back is the time of Abraham? We're still in Genesis 14 at this point. Relatively few people live on the earth. This was centuries before the sacrificial system, centuries before the law was given, centuries before any kind of religious structure had been instituted by God. And suddenly there's this very special priest who appears out of nowhere and he's called King of Salem, which means King of Peace, and his name means King of Righteousness. But he's also called a priest. All these are New Testament titles and descriptions of Jesus Christ, the only other priestly king in the Bible. So who was this priest who was also King of Peace and King of Righteousness? And where did he come from? Let's read on, verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, Excuse me? Without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. This is about Melchizedek. What? Who else but Jesus has no real physical father or mother? Who else but Jesus has neither beginning of days nor end of life? You tell me. And then it says that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. In other words, he wasn't exactly the Son of God yet. And this would be true of Christ at that point, since the phrase Son of God has to do with the fact that he became a literal human named Jesus when he was born of a virgin. And I'm saying that this Melchizedek was Christ, who we know existed forever. We've been covering that before he was born. So in other words, he was not yet literally human, I think that's why the writer of Hebrews says Melchizedek was like the Son of God because of the timeline. Or he was a type, a preview, because he wasn't human yet. And then it says this person, Melchizedek, remains a priest perpetually. Now, wait just a minute. This person remains a priest, remains a priest perpetually. Folks, this is written in the first century by the writer of Hebrews after Christ has returned to heaven. So after Christ, there is some other priest who's still reigning perpetually? Folks, the New Testament is extremely clear. There's only one eternal high priest at this point. Only one particular uh, perpetual mediator between God and man, and that is Christ. Listen, there's simply no way Christ and Melchizedek are up there 
in heaven right now, both serving as priests. In my mind, the only possible conclusion is that this Melchizedek was a pre-flesh manifestation of Christ, like the angel with Jacob called the Lord at one point. The, the, the angel at the burning bush with Moses, the, the, the other encounter with Abraham, we've covered these things recently. Uh, this, this special angel-like person that's sometimes talked about in the Bible and then referred to as the Lord in the same sentence in the Old Testament. I can't go back to all that. And by the way, this series through Hebrews really has to assume you've heard everything up to this point. But reading on verse 4, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Let's pause again. If we were to go back in the book of Genesis and read the story that is being referenced here by the author of Hebrews, we would see that Abraham just somehow knew to bow down before this king and priest and to give him a tenth of all that he had. A tenth, a tithe is a tenth. The word tithe, it's a fraction. It's a tenth. That's what the word tithe means. And so this was the institution, the principle that God should receive the first tenth of all that we have. Note that this came centuries before the law, before the law, which is also called, which also called for the tithe. But notice that the tithe came before the law as a matter of principle because of who this guy was. And therefore, it's certainly not been abolished by the fulfillment of the law. In addition, Jesus mentioned twice that we should not neglect the tithe, even now that we live under the New Testament. That's another sermon, one you want to be back for, I'm sure. But let's move on. Reading on, verse 5. <laughs> and those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren. He's saying this is where they got that from. Although these are descended from Abraham, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, not from the Levites, not from those priests, Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham, blessed the one who had the promises, Abraham of the covenant. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, having no genealogy, again, alluding to his deity. And by the way, Scripture speaks of no one who knew God or worshiped God outside of the line of, or at least influence of, Abraham. We don't know of these other people that were somehow worshiping. It was just Abraham and his family. Uh, there's nothing else in the Bible about anybody else at that point in history, people who weren't from Abraham. And so it doesn't fit the biblical narrative at all uh, unless Melchizedek was actually Christ. Verse 8, in this case, that is the case of the Levitical priesthood, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, the case of Melchizedek, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Well, so the later priesthood of Aaron and the Levites was mortal, but the former priesthood of, of Melchizedek, uh, priest known as Melchizedek was immortal. I thought all men died because of the curse of sin. Exactly. So who is it that lives on thousands of years later now, if not Christ? Verse 9, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek Met him. This is hard to unravel, but it means that Levi, the father of the Levitical priesthood, who would later descend from Abraham, had in some sense already paid tithes to Melchizedek through his ancestor. Abraham. Basically, this is just another allusion to the timelessness or the internal nature of Melchizedek. Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the peop uh, people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? 
and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. So he's saying again that because the priesthood of man was not perfect, but only temporary and insufficient, there was a need for another priesthood besides the Levitical one, and that not of man or from man, but more like the priesthood of Melchizedek, which didn't come from man. Verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, of necessity that takes place a change, there takes place a change of law also, for the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. Again, he is contrasting the eternal nature of the priesthood of Melchizedek with the temporal nature of the human priesthood and saying that neither Melchizedek nor Jesus came from the tribe of Levi like the imperfect priests. 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Priests didn't come from Judah, they came from Levi. So he's saying that Jesus had no physical claim to priesthood because he was not from the tribe of Levi or a descendant of Aaron. But going on, he says, verse 15, and this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, Christ, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from one of the prophetic Psalms, which predicted these things about the Christ. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that even, even the Old Testament authors understood that a priest would be coming. A priest would be coming who would not be descended from Aaron or Levi, but who would carry on the divine and eternal priesthood, a priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, that order being both heavenly and eternal. Now, let me try to sum up what all this means for us. It means that Christ is always always, always been the spiritual high priest to those who would approach God by faith. As he is for us, so he was for Abraham. When I say always, I mean always. I believe it was the pre-flesh Christ who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He was always that priestly and mediating member of the Trinity who was manifested to those on earth. This time, Christ appeared to Abraham as an eternal priest, Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And he was also referred to as king of peace, of whom it is also said he was without beginning or end. So how much better is a priesthood that encompasses all of human history? See, folks, the big point here is that Jesus didn't just become a high priest at some point along the way. No, he has always been the high priest, the ultimate mediator between God and man. It's very important to understand that the true Christian faith encompasses all of human history, not just the last 2,000 years. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. His priesthood is better because He has always been the high priest, and He always will be, which is the last point. His priesthood is better because He will always be the high priest. Again, we need to read some pretty heavy text that is difficult to unravel. Take one more deep breath. One more. We can do this. We'll start back with some of what we already read and go a little bit further this time for verse 17 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 17. For it is attested of him, Christ, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. That's interesting right there, isn't it? For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. 
pretty good so far, right? Um, that, that, that makes sense. Okay, well, here's where it gets twisty. Verse 20, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus had become the guarantee of a better, there's that word all throughout Hebrews, better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because it continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In the midst of what is hard to follow, please don't miss all the forevers and uh, all the uh, alwayses. How much better is an eternal priesthood than a temporary one? Well, that might depend on whether you'd rather be temporarily saved or eternally saved. Which would be better, do you think? Just look at verse 25 again. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. If you look at the previous verse, you can see how this works. Christ is able to save forever because. Verse 25, he's able to save forever because, verse 24, he continues forever. And also because he holds his priesthood permanently. Just one last time, I'm going to say, who else would we, did we just read about is a priest forever, perpetually? Melchizedek? It's not two people here, folks. And when does Jesus have been temporal? Just a remarkable historical figure who lived and died, and that was it. Great philosopher, nice person, whatever. What if Jesus had remained in the grave? What if that had been the end of his priesthood? What if we did not have a permanent, eternal high priest in Christ? Well, if Christ were not eternal, we would have no hope for eternal life because, again, he is the one who came down temporarily, ultimately, to bring us up forever. God said, if you sin against me, I bet everybody just about knows, you will surely die. We have all sinned. And so what we really needed was someone to return us to eternal life, to take us from death to life. But human priests could only grant temporary life through temporary forgiveness of sins because they themselves were temporary. Human priests, no matter how close to holiness they might have come, have always had the pesky problem of dying. But Jesus, our high priest, rose again, and now he lives forever to make intercession for us so that through him we can draw near to God. The bottom line of that passage we just read is this, because Christ's priesthood is eternal, our forgiveness is also eternal. All those who place their trust in Christ will have eternal life because he always lives to intercede on our behalf. Thank God Jesus Christ was always, will always be our high priest. Amen? I do hope you all are hanging with me. Some of you have more background knowledge, but I do realize that for some of you this is all new I recognize that some of this is hard to follow, but remember, I didn't write the Bible. <laughs> I just try my best to explain it. Also remember that we're not always going through a book like Hebrews, right? Um, if you're new here, it's not always this heavy, all right? Sometimes we're dealing with truth that's a little easier to figure out. I mean, Hebrews is meaty stuff. But I do love what Sir Thomas More said. God made the angels to show his splendor as he made animals for innocence and plants for their simplicity, but man he made to serve him wittily in the tangle of his mind. Some of you feel your mind a little bit tangled 
today. That's okay. Sometimes tangles happen on the way to being straightened out. I do appreciate your prayers as we continue this challenging series. Maybe after this one we'll learn, uh, we'll do something, we'll learn, how to, we'll learn about how to be nice people or something like that. Yeah, do something on joy or there's a place for that, of course. Anyway, if you're hanging in there uh, with me, say amen. amen. That's what I was afraid of. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that uh, you are above us and beyond us. Your ways are not like ours. But at the same time, we are created in your image. And we can understand just exactly as much as you want us to understand. And thank you that Christ is everything we need. He's everything. Everything else is peripheral. Our hope is in Christ. And we um, thank you for the ways you're reminding us of that in these, in these passages. Lord, just take your word in ways that I won't even know about and maybe we don't even realize. Uh, uh, we, have, we have feasted on your word today. We have eaten the bread uh, of life. We have um, taken in more than... Uh, just, just a human bread today. We've taken in the manna from heaven in a couple different ways, and I pray that you would um, use that to make us into better people, into stronger followers of Christ, into um, people that glorify you in our words, in our actions, in real ways. Not a lot of huge amount of application today, but we'll trust you with that. We'll just trust you with that as as your word gets into us. Your word does the work. You change us. And I'm trusting you today um, to take that, that word and, and use it in our lives. Just give us the strength we need to do the right things this week and to glorify you in real ways. And ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.